Welcome to the For Love and Money podcast, the show where business and social purpose meet to inspire a movement for positive change. Here's your host, Carolyn Butler-Madden. Our guest today is someone I've been trying to get on this podcast for almost a year, so I'm super excited to introduce you to Emma Freivogel. Emma is the founder of Radical Recruit, a London-based not-for-profit recruitment consultancy that exists to excite, agitate, and shake things up in the recruitment industry. If you love this episode, which I think you're going to, you're going to want to follow Emma on LinkedIn, where she is active in exciting, agitating, and shaking things up big time. Uh, Radical Recruit represents the UK's most diverse hidden talent. It helps employers do recruitment better and creates real and lasting social change. I'm going to share Emma's own words on why she started Radical Recruit. I began Radical because I believe it is time to boldly and unapologetically challenge the status quo. It is time to redress the imbalance of opportunity afforded to those labelled care lever, disabled, gang member, black, uneducated, inexperienced, homeless, criminal, or generally just not good enough. It is time to call out businesses who walk, who talk a big game when it comes to their commitment to equality, but whose policies fail to translate into practice. I am radical. Emma has brought together a community of like-minded people from disparate backgrounds to champion the business and ethical case for change to the way businesses source, recruit and develop hidden talent. Founded in October 2019, Radical has placed over 480 radicals into jobs that they love. During this time, they've also worked with hundreds of brands, helping them reimagine their traditional candidate attraction and engagement methods, run fairer, more equitable recruitment processes, recruit radical people and support them to flourish in their chosen careers. Emma, welcome to the For Love and Money podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to meet you and lovely to be speaking with you. Um, so thinking about purpose in business, um, and I know, you know, thinking about the clients you serve in business, what role do you think love has to play, if any, at all? I think um, it's a really good question. I, for me, I grew up in a family where I always knew I was loved. Um, we didn't have loads of money. You know, my, my dad worked his bum off. My mum came from pretty tumultuous circumstances and she didn't have a lot of love in her life um, growing up. Um, but I was always a young person or an adult, still am, almost an old lady. <laughs> Hardly. Very, very loved. And I think for me personally, having that love um, afforded me a whole load of opportunities. Um, to believe in myself, to go to university, to get a career, um, to love other people. And I think love is something that no matter who you are or what background you come from or what circumstances you were born into or what opportunities you're afforded in life, love is the one thing that everyone needs. You can be the richest person and not have any love and um, be missing out on the most beautiful thing uh, the human experience has to offer. So for me, love is absolutely um, integral to living a good life. Um, and love is something that, you know, in terms of my business and the way we operate, I think if you strip it all back, um, is, is central to what we do at Radical. Mm. 
A hundred percent, because it comes down to love of humanity, doesn't it? Love of your fellow human being. Yeah, absolutely. And love for yourself. Um, I think, you know, we, we do a lot of work around teaching people like self-compassion and teaching people to be compassionate towards others, a big part of loving. I think um, being kind, being fair, being equitable, um, just caring, I think. That's, that's what love is to me. Um, and that's what that's sort of, you know, fundamentally what we're all about at Radical. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Emma, can you share your background story that led to led you to where you are today with Radical Recruit? Certainly. So I have for I think this must be my 17th or 18th year working and throughout my career, I've always worked with what I term the underdogs of society. So I follow I, I followed in my mother's footsteps. She um, was a support worker and a teacher's aide for young people with disabilities. And then she moved into education and works in sort of economically deprived, pretty tough areas um, now in New Zealand, previously in Melbourne. And I always sort of um, was taught, I don't remember sort of ha having explicit conversations about this, but you know, that everyone's like equal and it doesn't matter what skin colour you are or how able you are to do one thing or another, um, that, you know, every everyone was had the right to exist and, and be valued members of the community. So I kind of like fell into disability and, and sort of was born with the gift of the gab and very quickly moved into leadership roles within the disability space. And then, you know, after my, my first leadership role, moved into lots of other sort of areas, like uh, I managed a, a hostel for 10 predominantly men with alcohol and other drug-related brain injury who came out of prison. And then I moved into sensory impairment, then I moved into um, physical disability, and then I did some, you know, work with people um, in the community in sort of uh, community centre settings and these types of things. And um, people or the underdog quickly became my passion. I lived and breathed sort of social justice. I had a really strong sense of right and wrong, often to my detriment. Um, and before I founded Radical, I so it was in between jobs and I applied to volunteer with an organisation called Working Chance who support women coming out of prison and also um, care leavers to find work and um, reintegrate into the community, not reoffend, and be financially autonomous and these types of things. And I did that for about two years and in my COO role um, played a very small part in supporting 400-odd women move into employment. But throughout my tenure, I became acutely aware of the fact that um, the team, although our remit was to recruit for big business, um, and, and, you know, prepare these women to transition into the world of work. Um, and although we had all the, the goodwill in the world, we didn't do it very well. So what happened was that we brokered opportunities for some incredibly talented, sometimes often very experienced um, women that just didn't align with their, well, recruitment preferences um, didn't afford them opportunities to earn a real living wage, much less, much less a, a, a salary that was sort of commensurate with what they, they brought to the recruitment table. Um, 
you know, we often sort of apply to sling mud at a, well, hope some of it sticks approach because we didn't really understand as a team the mechanics of recruitment or what it took to work with, you know, often big corporates who um, needed a short list of people in five days, <laughs> you know, no, no excuses, you know, that the pace at which um, organisations needed us to work, we just we couldn't match it. And so what that meant was we often put forward people um, for roles that they didn't want or couldn't do because we hadn't vetted them properly and these types of things. And often um, that would set, set the women up for, to fail. So either they got the role and they didn't sustain their placement or they got the role, but actually they weren't in living enough to, earning enough, sorry, to to live a good life. And, you know, they lacked career progression opportunities in these types of things. And um, I, I found myself speaking at the most wonderful conference, the Reward Gateway Engagement Excellence Summit. They do it every year. And if you can get there, if you're sort of London-based or UK-based, go, because it's fantastic. And the conference was themed HR Rebels. And I was speaking on a panel with um, two other people. So one was Ollie, who was the head of people at Honest Burgers, a brand that most Londoners will know, or most UK people will know because they're quite big now. Um, and also the first woman I ever met, Chanel, who um, I'd been tasked with sort of cobbling together a CV a few weeks before she um, was due to be released from prison. And um, we were telling that the, the panel was themed uh, what's possible when the third sector and the um, business community unite in, in common purpose. And we were talking about Chanel's story. We were telling Chanel's story from a different perspective. And the room was packed. Um, the room had, like, it was one of the most popular sessions of the day. And Chanel was talking about the fact that she had been born into really tumultuous circumstances. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean by that. She had, um, she was one of 13 siblings, uh, a black family. She was born into the West Midlands and her parents were from feuding um, gangs. Her mum was um, an alcoholic and drug user and her father was a prolific criminal and um, she was severely neglected and abused and I mean the, the things that happened to her um you know you don't even see in horror movies they were so unfathomable to me you know she was starved and beaten and all sorts of terrible things happened to her and then she and her siblings were taken into the care of the state um and I use care in that uh context very loosely because um it's another really broken system over here and during that time she became homeless on several occasions and found herself having to prostitute herself out to earn money to eat you know these really awful things happened to Chanel until she was recruited into um, her father's gang and, and made to do horrible things um, and she she had I, when I met her um, she'd been in prison serving a custodial sentence of six years, the end of a six-year sentence um, for arson. And um, when I spoke to her, she sort of explained all of these things as she was explaining to on the panel. But she was also talking about the fact that she founded a, a bakery called or a catering service called um, Down the Cake Hole. <laughs> it's pretty clever. Yeah, um, and she'd that. been catering all of these events for the governor, um, for our organisation as well. 
um, and for, for the other events that were run at the prison. And she trained a couple of what we call lifers over here, so women with life sentences, to take over the running of the bakery and upskill them. Anyway, she's telling this story and and she was saying things like, you know, for the first time in, I don't know, a couple of years, I think it was about 18 months after she'd been released, we are talking on the panel, um, that she hadn't sort of reoffended, that she um, had used those skills she acquired in prison to go and secure a job in the outside world, that one in introduction to one employer who just happened to taste a piece of her carrot cake and thought it was brilliant led to a, a job opportunity she'd never she never anticipated she'd ever get and then she was saying things like you know I've got a safe home I feel a part of a community I um have friends I feel loved I feel safe I just all these things that you know take for granted as a person who wasn't born into those same circumstances and who lived a bloody privileged life, as far as I'm concerned. And most of the people in the room couldn't couldn't say they weren't privileged in comparison to Chanel. And then she said, you know, I'm 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 training to be a head chef. So within sort of 16 odd months, she'd gone from, you know, the the dish pig to someone who was quite senior in the team and had a really hopeful outlook on life. And I just had this aha uh, uh, moment. I was like, bloody hell, literally all it took was one introduction to one employer and a piece of carrot cake. Hmm. And this woman was flourishing after, you know, 25 years of crime and prison and poverty. And I went away from that that conference and I just thought, fucking hell, like if this works for and I'd worked with loads of different people who were really vulnerable for lots of different reasons. But she was, I think, and probably still is the most uniquely vulnerable person I've ever supported. Um, if this sort of model where if your employment can trans can help mobilize someone out of the most desperate and hopeless situations into a place where, you know, they have um a, a life to look forward to and, and to build on then why couldn't it work for a similar model, a better model, a more radical model? Why couldn't that work for, you know, men um, coming out of prison? Why couldn't it work for people with disabilities? Why couldn't it work for gang-afflicted young people? Why couldn't it work for homeless folk, domestic violence survivors? You know, all these people that um, find mainstream recruitment consultants largely inaccessible and for which third sector ecology is not equipped to represent because they just don't know recruitment. So that's how Radical was was sort of founded. That's the backstory. I went to the pub after the conference. I'm a really cheap date and I get drunk very easily. I, I ordered one large glass of red wine. I never drink by myself and I sat in this pub. So I was just buzzing. I was like, and and the audience were like, wow, this they were so interested. Like I've never pitched so many people and being so warmly received. I think thanks to Chanel and her vulnerability and the way she spoke. I mean, she was so articulate and brave and courageous like all the things that employers look for that just can't be taught really like the determination grit and just like I don't know she's just a special woman she pitched this room and people were like oh my god we need to do more of this it sounds great yeah so I went to the the pub and you know scribbled down what is now our manifesto and um that that's sort of how radical began that's an extraordinary story and um and yeah, I mean, like you say, a carrot cake and an opportunity to to share her story and 
you know what that led to it's yeah it and I guess it's like the, the fact that she was fortunate to find someone who was open to it who could open the door for her and that's all that most people want that's all that most people need is a chance to get beyond you know what what they see the barriers that they see that yeah. um that don't open the door to any further opportunity yeah i mean i think people who live with you know the label ex offender or homeless or domestic survivor domestic violence survivor or return veteran or whatever they often come with gaps in their cv and i think that broadly speaking or at least here in the uk if you have a gap in your cv that's longer than three months you tend it tends to be discarded in the bin and you're on the talent scrap heap and um, you don't really get a look in i think that's changed slightly because of the pandemic and the fact that it resulted in mass redundancies and people going on furlough and this sort of thing but broadly speaking, you know, if you haven't got a steady, um, you know, track record of work experience on your CV, you're viewed through a lens of mistrust as if you're, you know, a dirty yeah. job popper or someone who, who can't keep a job or is not loyal or whatever. And that's just not the case um, for a lot of people. So I think that's that's one of the things that we really um, try to change is that perception um, amongst employers but I think actually you know three down like three years down the line because I didn't know about in recruitment I knew nothing about recruitment three years ago I still know nothing probably and I'm, I've got loads and loads to learn thankfully I've got a team of people from corporate who understand how big business operates and what they require for recruitment partners but one of the things that I've learned is also yes there's a piece around the label and, and how um, that restricts access to the labor market because of you know, bias and perceptions, but there's so many more barriers in the way. And actually they can be attributed to the fact that organisations, especially the big ones, haven't changed the way they recruit for 30 odd years. Mm. And they're still relying on the same engagement and attraction methodologies. And unfortunately, at least here in the UK, you know, we've got a talent short market. There aren't enough people to do the jobs that are open at the moment and what that means is organisations are having to go back to basics and really think about the fundamentals of their strategy, recruitment strategy, and reimagine what they usually do so it's fit for purpose. And one of the things that they're not doing very well is attraction um, and engagement. And I'll give you an example. You know, one in seven people over here are neurodivergent. So that might mean that they're dyslexic they could be dyspraxic they could have ADD ADHD um, they could be autistic any number of um, neurodivergent conditions or a combination of both and often what that means is reading a job advert which let's face it mostly they read like job specs really <laughs> No, the difference between job ad advert and the job spec isn't isn't often understood. So it's just like this long list of demands and big, dense, heavy um, chunks of text, um, and and they're just simply not accessible for a neurodivergent brain. Often, so we do a lot of work with the partners that we work with to look at how they attract talent, and often that means stripping back their crappily written adverts to make them neurodivergent friendly. Or, you know, for women, if they're wanting to attract more women, to run it through a um, gender decoder and remove the gendered, gender-biased language. Or it could be 
looking at where they place their ads. I mean, not everyone who's seeking a job is on LinkedIn, you know, mm. so looking at um, different ways to find jobs. So, yeah, the label piece and the, you know, gap on the CB and the often traumatic experience is one thing, but there's a whole, whole raft of other considerations that employers, I think up until recently, haven't um, been considering when it comes to, like, attracting diverse talent um, because they haven't have to. Yeah. Cause there's, and because and there's, like, a, if I can be so crude, I think there's sort of a collective arrogance amongst the business community, especially big businesses, like, why don't people want to come and work for us? Well, the answer is really simple. For the last 10, 20, possibly decades, years and years and years, you've not considered these people as viable candidates oh. and you've literally discarded them. Yeah. you know, because you have other options. And now all of a sudden you're committed to diversity. Oh, God, that that phrase is so, you know. Tell me about pattern. that. Tell me about that commitment to diversity because obviously, you know, it's a it's a big, big thing on the agenda at the moment of business. How, yeah. how, how real is it? Um, it's a good question. I think if I think about the landscape now for radical people versus Three years ago, I think it's really different. I mean, worlds apart. Um, I think there is a much better understanding of what diversity achieves through a business. If you look at it through a commercial lens, like we know diverse businesses um, are more agile. We know they're better at problem solving. We know that they provide better customer service. We know that the bottom line of um, businesses it tends to be better if, if a diverse staff is present in an organisation. We know that they um, tend to problem solve better through times of change. These like the, There's a body of evidence that, that, and it's been available for decades to prove that diverse businesses um, uh, perform better. Mm. I think that, because, you know, three things have happened um, that have changed the way um business leaders i think well actually the world broadly but also especially the uk community think about diversity i think you know when george floyd was murdered the world just stood still and had this social uh, not social racial um equity awakening i don't know why it took george floyd's murder to for this to happen because black people have been murdered for centuries and centuries and centuries and you know people were like shit Something needs to something needs to change now. We need to take some positive action and level the playing field. And you know, racial equity has to be um, a top of the agenda. I think that the fact that the pandemic, no one came out of the pandemic unscathed. We've all experienced the trauma of um, COVID, and we all understand that people who uh, the people who were disproportionately and adversely impacted were those who were with protected characteristics. I'm talking about um, women. I'm talking about young people. I'm talking about you know, over 50s, black and other ethnic minorities, um, the queer community. They they were the ones that were that most, um, the plague was most devastating for. But also everyone else is a hell of a lot closer to the breadline than we expected or knew we were. Mm. So there's, I think, in, certainly over here, um, you know, we had time to think about, like, what is our, our reality and then also the reality of others um and 
And I think for me, certainly, and, and lots of the people that I know in my circles, and if you look at LinkedIn during that time, people looking for like meaning and purpose and ways to give back and, and love each other, bringing it back to this podcast, like finding ways to love each other, make the, the world a better place and tackle the issues that, you know, government couldn't or wouldn't. So, yeah, there was this like change in, in the way businesses operated and they sort of were shifting towards a more purpose-driven, ethical, socially responsible model which has become the norm and then as, on an individual level I think you've got far more championship of or an allyship of black people of queer people who have a homeless folk um, on account of people realizing that actually we're so much more vulnerable than we thought we were because of the pandemic mm. and then you've got Brexit of course that's caused this huge skills gap and certainly a labor shortage in so many industry industries over, over here in the UK and I think probably everywhere um, that has meant that there's a, another sort of reason why businesses need to look at untapped talent and find um, people to fill their roles in, in from less traditional backgrounds. So those three things have really changed the landscape and all of those people are diverse by virtue of having sort of a protected characteristic or a diverse experiences means they think differently and they do things differently to your sort of pale, stale male, you know, CEO John. Um, or yeah, I I think I think we're just and and also businesses looking at um, diversity through like a socioeconomic lens as well. So you've got people with protections under the law, but also people with life, life experience that make them diverse. And they're typically people who've experienced sort of poverty um, yeah. or symptoms of poverty, like domestic violence, like drugs and alcohol, like homelessness, um, these types of things, contact with the criminal justice, contact with the care system. So it's changed. That, yeah, and that's got, that's got to bring um, such a different perspective to businesses because um, we have had such a cookie cutter approach, haven't we? In business, we've yeah. we've had businesses that really look at the safe option and a very narrow field of candidates, um, and it limits businesses, I think, in so many ways because it limits empathy, you know, yeah. for people in yeah. society. And those people might be your employees, they might be your customers, uh, but it just gives you a really narrow scope of what life looks like for people so when you get yeah I think I totally agree I mean I think lots of businesses are recruiting more of the same because they're doing exactly what they used to do when it comes to attracting engaging recruiting developing talent there's no doubt about it and I think you know it's all well and good to set a diversity target but that's the outcome of the work that you need to do and if you don't do the work you will never achieve the outcome you know, the number of times I've read on LinkedIn, you know, by some big wig CEO, we're committed to diverse, uh, equality and um, we've achieved 27% diversity, um, a 27% representation of, of women in our senior roles. And it's like, well, that's not equality. Mm. That's just better representation. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they often haven't done a lot of the work they need to do to achieve real diversity and do you call equality. them out emma sometimes sometimes <laughs> i think there's a fine line between alienating potential partners 
and calling them out. So I think, uh, and a, a very sort of, you've got to be a little bit diplomatic about the way you do it. And I've um, mellowed over the years and had to I've learned that the hard way. So I used to call bullshit. Um, but I was a little bit more na- naive back then. I, I still call bullshit, but in different ways. <laughs> um they tend to be um go on my lead list and i'll 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 have a a quiet word with them um to talk about what we can do to help them really achieve equality rather than just talk about it but yeah there's a lot of rhetoric out there and and a lack of action as far as we're concerned the one thing that we've realized is, is that i think there is an appetite to um and an understanding of the importance of achieving greater diversity um, but organisations don't know how to go about it, and it oft, it's often still a nice to have rather than an imperative. Mm. And what that means is it isn't treated with the same seriousness as other sort of considerations like managing risk or managing finance or whatever it is, you know, PR or whatever. Um, and, and it really should be because I think if it was everyone's responsibility, people didn't um, do their part to um, diversify or, or create, you know, inclusive um, spaces where people feel like they belong or run fair recruitment processes or, you know, uh, recruitment campaigns that in, attract and engage a really broad audience. If they didn't do that and they got the sack or they they could get the sack, then I think a lot more work would be done to you know, bolster the the strategy and achieve the the goals of of diversity plans and campaigns. But I mean, you just got to chip away, don't you? Enjoying the podcast? If you're looking for more inspiration, head to our website, thecauseeffect.com.au for more resources on how you can start using your business as a force for good. Or buy the For Love and Money book, Every copy sold allows us to protect one square metre of rainforest. Help us save 10,000 square metres by 2025. I remember you telling me when we first started talking, you know, nearly a a year ago, that um, when you started the organisation, you wondered whether you get enough clients. Um, But the reality was pretty quickly that um, you, you couldn't you couldn't deliver on the demand. Is that still the case? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the it's the landscape's changed so much. I can't tell you how how um, different it is for our radicals. The opportunities where we're opening up and the types of businesses we're working with now versus three years ago is there was a part. I mean, I was my first year. I got a I got a grant grant or a grant depending on how Australian I'm feeling. Um, <laughs> um we got a grant she's waking up the caffeine's kicking in thank gosh for that um we got a a grant that sort of enabled me to live off two minute noodles and and pilot the project for the first 12 months and at that time I didn't have a team around me I had no networks with with you know the business world I knew nothing about recruitment other than how not to do it and I'd only like personally been I've worked with crappy recruiters so I didn't even know what good looked like um anyway I in order because we didn't need to earn an income in order to pilot the the project and because I was repping you know people with those labels ex-offender homeless care leavers who often didn't have a great deal of experience or you know 
who weren't weren't perceived as being viable candidates. I was begging for vacancies and doing the work for free just so I could I could um uh you know prove the model worked. And um you know very quickly I mean in my first year I think I did about 65 placements by myself, which was pretty damn good. Mm. And then we got some um funding from the GLA in oh, just just before year two started the greater london authority that is um to work with a heap of um rough sleepers about 65 of them who've been literally picked up off the streets in what was called the everybody in campaign so it was a campaign run by government um in partnership with homeless charities and in the in the name of public um safety a huge like in the 90 percent range of um rough sleepers across the nation were picked up off the streets and given accommodation they literally solved rough sleeping the problem of rough sleeping overnight and so we were um well i was commissioned to work with about 65 uh, men and women predominantly men i think we had two women in the cohort and uh they were people with no recourse to public funds didn't speak a bloody word of english often had <laughs> no formal experience of um, recruitment uh, processes, didn't have CVs, had been victims of modern day slavery, like you name it. You can imagine what kind of people, and they were all living in um, student digs because there were no students in London. And we did, um, we placed 45 of them into work. Um, 78% remain in work two, two years later. We're still in contact with a good deal of them. And um, through that, we did a whole load of profile raising. And all of a sudden, we're having organisations like Warner Media come to us and say, can you help with our early careers program? Or we work with yeah, lots of sort of, you know, high street brands or global brands now that I just would never have thought I'd be able to to partner with because what we offer is, well, we offer four different things, you know, a solution to the skills and labour shortage, a solution to big businesses' diversity woes, and small and medium, we work with all. Um, we offer opportunities to create social value, um, which is something you need to be able to do over here to get contracts mm-hmm. um, or to remain on the supplier lists of, you know, the big, big guys. Um and yeah, so so we we sort of tick lots of boxes, recruitment, diversity. Social responsibility, um, social value, and ESG is a new new one. Um, yeah. So we we help with the the social pillar of ESG. So yeah, now we've got gosh, I don't know how many employers on our books, but we're brokering opportunities for our radicals, range you know that pay from ranging London living wage to I think 120k is our our uh, biggest um, you know most high salary that we've negotiated and we've placed people in all manner of um, disciplines and sectors. We're on the PSLs of some, some uh, multinationals and global brands. You know, we're getting asked to work with organizations that don't, you know, that, that want to do radical recruitment across um, Europe. It's bizarre how things have changed, but I think it's definitely a testament to how, Big business, or what what biz, big business is committed to, and how they're going about it. Um, so yeah, really exciting. And us. it goes back to what you said about the pandemic. Um, you know, you you touched on how how people rolled their sleeves up, and businesses just you know got in and looked at how they can help. I I've got a chapter in my book 
called Acts of Love during a pad, uh, during a pandemic, and um, and literally it's just all these different examples of how businesses just stepped up. It was like, what can we do? Who who can we help? You know, who are the most vulnerable that need help here? Who are the homeless? Um, yeah. You know, hotels actually, you know, looking after the homeless yeah. and and um, and you know, uh, domestic violence victims and things like that and. I don't know, Emma. I, I reckon it goes to this human truth that I, I reckon people. I, I think we're hardwired to yeah. to be decent, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But society, you know, has set us up to just kind of gloss over that and get on the treadmill, um, and you know, we just don't have time to look beyond that. So the pandemic has disrupted that somewhat yeah I would agree completely I mean I think but it starts with school think about like what what success looks like what we're taught to believe success looks like you know when you go to school you you study by yourself you compete against everyone else and you know it, the the most successful people are the ones with the highest grades and it doesn't matter if you've helped out you know, the, the student sitting next to you, no one pays attention to that when they're struggling. It doesn't matter how you get to where you get. It's at the end of the day, it's how well do you score on, a, on an exam? That's only, it's uh, that's designed for a certain type of person. It's designed for neurotypical brains who are academically inclined and um, get all the opportunities in life typically, <laughs> you know, and, it, and that translates into sort of how we operate in the business business world as well it's like this whole piece around like values I think we don't we don't think enough about I, I, th I think it's changed a lot since the pandemic definitely um but you know how you do what you do and what you achieve when you do what you do are equally as important as far as I'm concerned and if you have to sort of kneecap someone step over them to to achieve success then for me that's not success mm. You know what I mean? I think that's what we're taught. You know, the the fastest person wins a race. The strongest person wins a comp. You know, the lifting competition. Um, you know, the loudest it, person gets heard. And it breeds FOMO, doesn't it? Because it's <laughs> yeah, that fear yeah. of missing out. It's like, okay, I've got to conform. I've got to do. I've, you know, I might. But want again, that, to, I mean, you you're taught to conform in school, aren't you? It's like mm. you've got to be at quarter to nine you've got to wear the uniform you've got to put your hand up before you speak you've got to ask to go to the toilet all of these things and that translates into what work you're not taught to to love in school you're not taught to be kind you're not caught, taught to you know give people a, a hand up when they fall down you're not taught those things I don't remember ever being taught like the fundamentals of being a great human you know being curious asking questions being empathetic you know unconditional regard congruence these types of things that I mean we bang on about this at, at radical all the time that's what great leadership is for me mm. but you've got to be human to have those to practice those skills and I don't think like you say we're taught that they are the skills to lead with we're we're brought up with a scarcity model you know that there's um there's not enough pie to go around so we've got to fight for it and, yeah, but um, leadership though, isn't it? It is. I mean, it totally is. I think the other thing that we forget is doing something loving isn't for the person you're loving 
or what, you know, there's a mutual exchange that happens and it's beautiful. When I first started Radical, I relied on the kindness and the love of strangers that I plucked off LinkedIn to help me get our radicals ready. You know, so I would have 20 odd people who I didn't know who were typically recruiters or seasoned hiring managers in a Zoom room helping, you know, 10 odd rad- radicals prepare for interview or, you know, rework their CVs or have coaching conversations and these types of things. And ironically, I had so much engagement with volunteers from the business world during the pandemic that has absolutely petered off now that we're back to normal. Yeah. Um, and it's a real, it's a real shame. But my point was that these people got so much out of those acts of love, so much out of those acts yeah. of love. I know that because they came back time and time and time again. We delivered thousands of hours in that first year of the plague of volunteer support. We supported hundreds of people, radicals, to regain their confidence, to build their CVs, to think about, you know, what their life could look like, to secure jobs, to sustain their placements. And, um, you know, you get the warm and fuzzies, you learn new skills. Um, you know, it's, it's you know, loving is a, a mutual exchange often. It's not a one-way street. You know, it's... um. I, I interviewed someone else on this podcast, Sandra Treadwell, and she shared the concept of Ubuntu, the African concept. Are you familiar with it? Tell me. It's it takes a village. Well, it's the idea that we're all connected and I exist because of you. And if you're unhappy, I can't be happy. And, you know, it, it is just that that basic humanity that, we have to look after each other if we're all to oh, thrive. Absolutely. And but I mean, if, I, I totally agree. It's funny. I'll give you an example of what that means in radical terms. It costs £21,000 of the taxpayer's money to leave a, home, a per, homeless person on the streets for three months or more. £21,000? Yeah, on average, yeah, for three months or more. So wow. every year per annum. And so it makes it makes. That's 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 our 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 taxpayer money. So it makes really good sense to love homeless people, <laughs> um, especially those who are living rough on the streets. Yeah, because a little bit of love, and we proved it with that that project we did with the GLA. You know, we placed forty five people. Seventy eight percent are still in work two years that's later. Amazing. They're now paying taxes. Yeah, they're now living healthy lifestyles. They're now not. Um, you know, using up the time and the resources of emergency services. They're, um, you know, it's, it's all these things. And just because, you know, six months of, of a little bit of respite and the support they needed, that's all they, they needed to get mm. their lives back on track. And these people have been homeless for, you know, some of them over 10 years. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So it kind of makes, it makes economical sense. It makes Absolutely. good business sense for everyone just to do, a little bit more to help each other um, because it's in everyone's best interest. Absolutely. And I'm interested in um, your clients. So the, the, your best placements, tell me about the clients of your best placements. You don't, you don't have to name them. Um, but what I'm curious about is, you know, are they, are they, where are they coming from? Is this about box ticking? Is this about diversity quotas? 
or is this a, a genuine commitment to we actually value, we, we do value diversity and we want to do this right? The challenge with answering this question is that um, we're working with whole organisations and not everyone within those organisations shares the same drivers, motivations, yep. commitment, beliefs. So it's really challenging to answer that question with any sort of accuracy. I think, largely speaking, organisations come to us because it isn't a box-ticking exercise, that they are committed to diversity. Whether or not they re they are ready to attract, engage, recruit, develop, support diverse people, whether they even have a good understanding of what diversity means for them is a whole nother, like question to be answered um but I think largely speaking nowadays and this might be because of the way we position ourselves on LinkedIn which is where we get all our leads we are not um bid candy we are not your box ticking diversity partner so we don't tend to get a lot of inquiries from organizations who um, need help ticking in a box and actually since we started charging for our services the inquiries we get, we find are far more authentic and genuine in the context of their commitment. Um, I imagine so, your LinkedIn profile has a lot to do with that, Emma. Yeah, I mean, when we started, I didn't, I didn't, there was, we didn't have a brand, I didn't have any, like, no one knew who I was. And this whole concept of social recruitment, ethical recruitment, whatever you want to call it, was completely alien it was mostly done by third sector organizations they didn't do it very well and they certainly didn't talk about it publicly so I literally had and I didn't have a I didn't use LinkedIn before then but I got a very loud voice and I had some great stories to tell and I didn't really care where they landed I had hoped that they would land you know or be warmly received and um, sort of propel people into action and get them talking and thinking differently. But I, d I didn't really know, so I just went for it, really. And um, now that's sort of the place where we meet our um, in, our sort of future partners is on LinkedIn. Um, the, the tricky part, the tricky thing that I'm now faced with is transferring my personal brand over to the business so yeah. that I'm not, I'm not the face of Radical, that the team um, and the brand stand, stands on its own legs. And we're slowly but surely getting there. But, yeah, definitely um, LinkedIn has been integral to our success um, and what we've achieved to date. Because you've got a very clear talking. sense of identity and I think, you know, that challenge about how do you how do you transfer that to a brand identity so it's not just about you. I mean, clearly you have borne the brand um, and there's going to be a lot of your personality in there, but that I guess that is the next stage in your journey. Um how do you how do you set your recruits up for success? The people we represent. Yeah. There's sort of two things that we do. We work with the radical to, I mean, first understand the barriers, real or perceived, that have prevented them from getting a job in the first instance, progressing their career, or returning after a period of absence. And that will look different for absolutely every radical. There's some key things that we always do with every radical. I mean, initially it was because I was a control freak, but then I learned about ATS and how challenging it is to get past the robot. <laughs> um, so we ATS, do things like, what's ATS? Yeah, applicant tracking system. So they were right. brought in, they were used by like initially the big Fortune 500 companies that would receive thousands and thousands of applications for 
you know, a job, which were impossible to sort through if you're a recruiter. But nowadays they're used um, for other reasons, like to reduce bias and recruitment processes. And I mean, by big and small companies, because they're relatively um, easy and, and cost-effective to acquire. But um, so we do things like uh, CV reviews, um, mock interviews, these types of things to prepare our radicals. But we also have, you know, a pro bono um, relationship with a psycholo- psychological service. So they provide um, person-centered talking uh, therapy or person-centered therapy and um, CBT, which you can wait years and years for on the NHS over here. Um, we do sort of have careers conversations we I mean the other day I I had a conversation with a, a woman she just like confidence and I we ended we we sort of stripped back all of our fears and her you know these things that pertain to sort of self-fulfilling prophecies that just weren't real they were just her self-beliefs you know negative beliefs and end of the conversation <laughs> I made her before I interview I made her stand in the superwoman pose you know what the superwoman pose yeah, is? yeah 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 and um, took a few deep breaths. And then I said, now tell me you're a fucking fabulous woman. You're going to get this, you're going to slay this interview. And she sort of really quiet. And I said, say it again, but louder. T- say it like you mean it. So she's yelling this this new mantra of hers <laughs> down the phone. So we do loads of different things. I mean, absolutely obscene things to the really obvious things to get our radicals ready. I think the the biggest piece of the hardest work we do is actually with our clients. Um, to ensure that they've got the infrastructure, so the policy and the process in place, um, the uh, leadership capability. When I talk about leadership capability, I mean not only buy into diversity, but anti—you know—leaders who practice anti-bias um, and who are trauma informed, because everyone mm-hmm. suffered trauma in their life. Um, yeah. There's no no doubt about that. And then also the culture, like that culture shifting piece, so that when we do um, support radicals into their, you know, a, a job in an organisation that's been working with us, they feel like they they belong and they're included and they've got sort of a seat at the table and a microphone to speak into. So they're the they're the things that we do on both sides. Um, and in, in theory, when you do both well, people secure jobs that they love so they can build lives that they love and they find themselves in organizations where they belong they feel included and they're supported to progress in their chosen careers and we're actually seeing you know we're in year what are we in year four now because it's our third birthday no yeah it was our third birthday 2019 yeah 19 20 21 22 yeah so we're in year four now and and um we're finding that our radicals that have been placed previously are coming back to us to say, you know, I've got this opportunity um, to interview for a, a more senior role in my organisation or I'm looking to move on into something bigger and better and we're supporting them to do that. So the, the model has proven to work. That was the dream and um, it's now happening, which is very cool. Very That's cool. amazing. Congratulations. And I imagine it has not been an easy road at all and you know just what you're doing is fantastic um I want to ask you what's so you've achieved one dream to prove the model what's the next dream um the next dream yeah it's a good question so I mean we don't just do recruitment anymore we do um advisory consultancy so we go into businesses 
and assess that the efficacy of their attraction, engagement, recruitment, onboarding, development processes. And then we help them to rip apart all of those and reimagine them and pilot and tweak. And um, we do that with sort of key people in organisations um, with a focus on sort of capacity building. So then they can go and take those skills and do the same thing over and over and over again. So um, we also do uh, lots of sort of culture shifting work, you know, um, away days and corporate volunteering and um, these types of things. And we've developed a number of um, training, training. They're not training. I hate training because I hate being booked out. I'm not, I don't learn that way. So it's sort of a combination of facilitation, experiential learning. So do anti-bias and leadership, the radical way introduces delegates to a trauma-informed approach and um, uh, anti-bias, and that can be applied to all sorts of different teams and situations. Even we might be looking at just an end-to-end process. So we want to do um, more of that because actually I think that's where we add the most value. Yes, we can fill a a role um, with a diverse person we can give you a uh, more diverse shortlist but actually what we want organizations to be able to do is um attract engage recruit the radical way and do it for themselves so they can sort of scale up and do do more than we will ever be able to do for them um so that that for me is is the, the dream the goal um and we're doing more and more of that and i think um through that what what I want to be able to do is recruit more radical people to deliver those services and go into business and shake shit up really, because Love that. Um, I'm, like I said at the start, an incredibly privileged person with very limited experience of the barriers that um, the people exist, um, you know, my face day to day. And I'm not the most credible teacher and I'm certainly not the most credible speaker and um you know, I want to give more radical people opportunities in our business to go and make change for themselves because that's essentially what we're about. What a radical thought and, you know, what a what a wonderful way to shake things up and just create more more empathy in business, more opportunity for people and the ripple effect that you talked about, not just on those people's lives themselves but their family and communities is extraordinary. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got a full day ahead of you, so I am going to let you go, but I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing the radical story with us. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. I'm so sorry it took so long to get here. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter. You got here. We got there in the end. I really appreciate you having me and thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the For Love and Money podcast. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the purpose movement, visit us at thecauseeffect.com.au. And remember, doing good is good for business. So if you're not doing good, then what are you doing?